Hi guys, so excited to share my podcast interview with my friend, Alan Dom, who was a powerful real estate titan and political figure in Philadelphia. This was also a special one for me because Alan was a close buddy of my dad's. So quick background on Alan. He comes from very humbling upbringing. He grew up in an 800 square foot apartment unit with his parents and brother in Fort Lee, New Jersey. He was constantly finding ways to make money, whether it be a paper route before and after school or shoe shining, Alan was always hustling. He took evening classes at American University in DC and during the day worked full-time as a salesman at Phelps Time Lock Service. After graduating college in 1977, he was transferred to the company's Philadelphia office. To make extra money, he decided to sell residential real estate at nighttime. As the real estate business became more profitable, he quit his full-time day job at Phelps Time Lock Service and opened his very own real estate office in 1983. Fast forward almost 40 years, Alan Dom has built a real estate empire in Philadelphia earning him the title Philly Condo King. Not only is he a powerful real estate titan, but he also has shocked Philadelphia when he decided to run for city councilman in 2015, in which he was elected and then re-elected again in 2019. Perhaps he is so well-respected because he has one goal, which is to make Philadelphia a better place. He also was kind enough to share his failures and how important it is to always be resilient. Hope you guys enjoy. So welcome, Alan, down to the podcast. Really excited to have you here. Um, so there's a few reasons I'm excited. I was thinking on my car ride down here today. So number one, you made a significant name for yourself in the city of Philadelphia. So you, you're probably one of the most successful um, people in the real estate industry in Philadelphia. Um, and now you're also making a major impact um, in the political arena, which is really cool. Um, number two, I've done some research. And I know that you come from humbling backgrounds. So I think that your story can really inspire a lot of people that, you know, anything's possible if you work hard. Um, number three, to be completely honest, um, I don't know that much about the politics in Philadelphia. So I had a lot of fun researching it and learning more. And I'm really excited to learn more today. And I think a lot of people are in my same boat that they need to become more educated. So I think that you'll be able to deliver that message. Um, and number four, you're good buddies with my dad. He thought really highly of you. So for listeners that don't know, my dad passed away in October 2018, and you spoke at his funeral, which was really cool. Um, so yeah, he would have thought this was really fun. Um, so anyway, so I thought we'd start out by having you provide us with a little bit of background on where you're from and where you grew up. Okay. Thank you yeah. for having me. And mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. Your dad was an amazing man and mm -hmm. a great mentor for many of us. Yeah. In the real estate business, mm -hmm. and not only was I, was was I active with him at the Greater Philadelphia Association of Realtors, mm -hmm. but we also had a group of real estate people, of twenty five people, which no one really knows about. Okay, but him and I were members of that also. Oh, cool! Which I really can't talk about it. Okay, <laughs> but, uh, it was really unique. Yeah, I think you could have these uh, twenty four other people that you could refer to and mm -hmm. ask questions of, and it was a very very. Uh, humbling experience for me to be asked to join that group, and, oh, nice. and your father was already in that group. Oh, very cool. You guys had a lunch probably like a year ago or so, right? Yes, we did. A little bit more? Okay. Every two, two, two to three times a year we get together. Okay. Which is really cool. Very cool. So um, so I'll tell you about my background. I, I did not grow up in Philadelphia. I grew up in Fort Lee, New Jersey, mm -hmm. before Governor Christie made it famous with the bridge. Okay. <laughs> and I grew up pretty modestly in a, uh, an apartment building, about 60 mm -hmm. or 62 units. It was a rental. Mm -hmm. And... We, I grew up with my brother, myself, my parents in an 800-square-foot apartment, roughly. The rent was modest. It was $100 a month. Wow. When we were 12 years old, I remember we got evicted because my mother complained there was no hot water for a week. 
wow. and she called the landlord who lived in this town we never heard of called Lower Merion. Okay. That's where the landlord lived. Right. And a month later, we got evicted from the apartment. Wow. I guess for complaining to the mayor of Fort Lee that we had no hot water. Okay. So um, we moved to a house after that, but I had all types of jobs when I was growing up. I remember mm-hmm. we took a trip out west when I was four and my brother was eight. My parents asked us on the way back, they took us to Arizona in the middle of July, okay? Mm-hmm. And our car didn't have air conditioning, so they had to borrow my uncle's car that had air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And on the way, we only got to Arizona, we could make it to California. It was kind of like that Wally World trip, you know, vacation <laughs> almost. Yeah. Before that came out. So on the way back, um, my brother, my parents asked my brother and I, what do you want? My brother mm-hmm. said, we want a shoeshine kit. I had no idea what he was talking about. I was four okay. years old. What was it called? A shoeshine kit. Okay, shoeshine, shoeshine shoes. kit. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we get the shoeshine kit. My brother tells me, listen, we're going to get up at 530. We lived in this apartment building where the orange and black bus, the number nine bus, stopped at the corner mm-hmm. to, to pick up all the commuters into New York City to the Port Authority. And they'll okay. make all the stops at Fort Lee, Clipside Park, Bergen, uh, uh, was called uh, uh, Jersey City, West New York, and then went sure. to New York City. Guttenberg. Okay. Uh, people have never heard that word, Guttenberg. But that's between uh, Cliffside Park and... Uh, Jersey City base, West New York. Okay. So anyway, the bus would stop at our front of our building. We'd go out at 5.30 in the morning, shine shoes for 25 cents a shine, hoping mm-hmm. for a tip. Okay. And, you know, just shows you how far we've come. Right. On, on dollar-wise, we were hoping for 10 cents or 15. Mm-hmm. If we got lucky they gave us a quarter. That was unusual. Okay. Because it was 10 cents. Right. And now I'm sounding really old, but this was <laughs> 60 years ago. Right. So, um... Yeah, how old are you? Just, just listen. Okay, so that the listeners can have an idea. Okay. So, um... We did that for a long time, maybe a year to two years, and then uh, from 5.30 to like 7.30, then we went to school. Mm-hmm. And then we had all different types of jobs growing up from, uh, and you know, my grandparents would buy my brother and I books, and my okay. brother was very creative. He said, we didn't read the books, okay. but he said, let's start a library and lend them out. Okay. So when I first learned the value, I was like seven years old, but I learned the value of late fees. Wow. So we the books, like give me yeah. two weeks to read it, and if yeah. these kids in our apartment building didn't bring it back, we'd charge them late fees. Mm-hmm. Well, about six weeks to eight weeks after we opened the library, we charged some kid $3.50 in late fees, which was a lot of money. Yeah, it was a lot back then. Yeah. yeah. And then that night, his father came down and uh, closed the library and told my parents. Okay. My parents said the library shut down. They didn't yeah. know what we were doing it. But we had all kinds of different uh, schemes and ideas and right. jobs that we did. So, in fact, when I was 11 years old, I had two paper routes. One in okay. the morning. It was called the Hudson Dispatch at 5.30. Okay. And one in the afternoon called the Bergen Record. Wow. It was delivered. And I uh, did that for a, a while till the teacher in my class called my mother and said I was falling asleep in class. In class, yeah. And I was you're, you're done with the morning round. Right. The afternoon round. Okay. And then I had uh, all different types. When we moved, I had uh, all types of jobs like cutting grass. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, you're raking. Right. You yeah. You know, my father got us a lawnmower. It sounds really old. It was not an automatic. It was a real Okay. You know, the, that are yeah. not powered. Got so, it. Yeah, so we didn't have a catcher. We had a rake. It was unbelievable when you think right. about how far we've come. Yeah. So that was $5 a lawn. We had eight or nine lawns we used to cut. It was good mm-hmm. money. And yeah. I always used to save the money. Okay. I think that's one of the keys. I always used to save. Okay. I didn't spend. And then when I was uh, in high school, I was on a wrestling team. And I think my junior year, I was able to work as a janitor after wrestling practice from oh, 6.30 wow. till 10, okay. Monday through Friday, you know, cleaning offices. Sure, yeah. Vacuuming, emptying trash cans of office building in okay. the area. And uh, did that for a while. I was making $1.60 an hour. Yeah, wow. When you think about it, it's like unbelievable. Yeah. And I thought that was a lot of money back then. Right. And 
then. I was a good humor man. I had all different kinds of jobs. I pumped gas on the Palisades Interstate Parkway as a gas station attendant. Yeah. Gas was 33 cents a gallon back then. Right. Went to school in Washington, D.C. Okay. At American University and went to school, took all night classes and worked full-time during the day at a company called Phelps Time Lock Service. Okay. Started out as a mechanic assembling the locks. It was a security system. Yeah. Then I asked if I could service the locks. It was a PM service repairman. Sure, yeah. I remember over the Christmas break, Mm-hmm. They had to change 53 cylinders in different Rite Aid drugstores, mm-hmm. which was one of their accounts, yeah. throughout West Virginia, Virginia, and Maryland. Okay. And they were going to give them to locksmiths. They were locksmiths were going to charge them $45 each. Right. So I said, well, there's 53 of them. That's like over $2,000. I said, yeah. I'll do them all, and okay. I can do a better job at $35 each. Okay. So they gave me the uh, the assignment I did over my uh, Christmas break. Visit, Very cool. Traveling through all these areas. Yeah. I remember traveling through West Virginia. I never forgot this, and it was, it was like, it went from like the twenty. I went from the twenty sixth of December to mm-hmm. the second of third of January. Okay. But I remember when I was there on the second of January. Um, I guess checks came in for whatever social security or welfare, and you mm-hmm. could see the drugstores, a lineup of people, right, going to buy things because they got their checks. It was a very depressed area. Got it. Okay. Interesting. When I was in Wheeling, West Virginia, and all these different towns. Yeah. So I got to see the United States through this job. Through the job, yeah. And very I made cool. like two thousand dollars. Yeah, it's a lot of money back then. Yeah, yeah. that's great. So, uh, and I was very thrifty. I mm-hmm. remember in Elkins, West Virginia, I checked. I used to carry a uh, a duvet, basically. It was a sheet. Okay. In my trunk, mm-hmm. I checked into this a motel, whatever. It was six dollars for the night, mm-hmm. and I was afraid to sleep on the sheets. So I bring the sheet out of the trunk. Okay. <laughs> and myself into the yeah, sheet. Yeah, yeah. There was no windows in the room. There was right. A, there was a over the doorway. There was like a transom. Yeah. That's how you got the air in the room. It was okay. not exactly a luxury accommodation. Right, right. The next night, I remember sleeping in uh, down by um, Lewis Lewistown, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. There was a Greenbrier Estate down there. Okay, yeah. But I didn't stay there. Okay, sure. I stayed yeah. in this overlook in my car. I slept in my car that night. Wow. To save the money. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so it was just some of those stories. Some of those stories, yeah. So, so I, I worked at Phelps Time Lock for three and a half years. Okay. And this uh, is during college? Yeah. Okay. Full time. Oh, this college. $3,500, roughly, 3000 A year. A year. Wow. And so I worked I worked, and then went to school at night, graduated okay. three and a half years. This time lock company offered me a job in Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. everybody here. Right. And it was, I remember it was November of 76, and so I said, all right, I'll t- check it out. I come okay. up here to look for an apartment. There's a paper strike. The inquirer's on strike. Okay. And so how do you look for an apartment? You go to the Yellow Pages. Now, nobody does that today. Yeah. There are no Yellow Pages. Right. It shows you how far our economy has come. Yeah. And so I found a place in English Village. Was the Time Lock office was at 1212 Chestnut Street. Okay, sure, yeah. And I wanted to go to Temple to take, get my MBA. Mm-hmm. And they said to me, you can't go to Temple North Broad. It's not safe. you got to go to Ambler. Okay. So I looked on the map and saw okay. North Wales. I saw there's a train that comes in from North Wales into the center city. Okay. And I saw Temple Ambler, and I said, this place called English Village has apartments. So I rented an apartment there for a year. Okay. Stayed there for one year. Realized all the trains stopped in Jenkintown. Yeah. So decided to then get off the train one day and bought a house, walked up and saw a for sale by owner of FISBO. Okay. And uh, knocked on the door. I didn't know that much about real estate, but I'm going to tell you a prior story about real okay. estate. Knocked on the door. A guy named Lesher Valentine was the owner. He was actually mm-hmm. a realtor at that time with a company called Hugh Gerhard Realtors. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, I'm asking $47,000. It was 325 Greenwood Avenue. Okay. I said, okay. Now, I couldn't afford it. So I, had right. to have, uh, I couldn't afford the mortgage. It was a... I had the down payment. Okay. 
but I couldn't afford the loan. I didn't make enough money. I was making $15,000 a year. Okay. So uh, I asked my grandmother to co-sign. And she didn't have a lot of money, but right. she had Social Security. Got it. And a CD that paid yeah. some good interest at that time. So she co-signed the loan, and I got the $36,000 loan, bought the house, and moved there. Sure, yeah. Stayed there for a year, and then saw the Academy House was selling condominiums. This was in 1978. Okay. It was uh, $59,900 for a one-bedroom. And the last time in your life, you're going to see 7.5% mortgages. Right. Because remember, at this point, mortgages had gone to 20%. Okay, got it. Um, or actually, they were 18 or 19 at that point. So okay. So I took a mortgage at 7.5%, bought a mm-hmm. one-bedroom at Academy House. Let me back up for a minute. Okay. I'm 12 years old, still living in the apartment. I was talking about real estate. Mm-hmm. And my parents decided, even though they're pretty thrifty and careful they wanted to buy a piece of land in a community in florida back then florida land sales people used to come to people's homes and sell them land okay some people thought it was swamp but they were selling them land. yeah this was in a community called palm coast okay so i'm listening in the hallway my parents are in the living room it's a small apartment and um the guy's talking about well we have this lot it's 30 uh, it's either three thousand or thirty five hundred dollars you have to put down ten percent which is three hundred or three fifty dollars right to pay some small amount, 25 or 30 bucks a month, something okay. like that, for X amount of years, yeah. maybe 10 or 12 years. So yeah, my parents say, okay, we're gonna buy this lot. They bought the lot. And on the way out, I'm 12 years old, I said to the salesman, do you have any of this or these properties that are on the order? He goes, yes, we do. And he, and he pulls one out of his bag and says, this one's 10,500. Okay. So I said, oh, I'm interested. My parents said, no, you're not. <laughs> anyway, long story yeah. short, a few days later, I called my grandmother. Okay. Uh, who at this point, uh, my grandfather passed away. Okay. And I said to her, hey, Grandma, I know uh, that I'm interested in this piece of land. I have mm-hmm. the down payment. I'll make the payments. They told me the payments would be, uh, I remember this, $142.63 a month. Okay. If I put down, like, you know, I think the down payment was 10500 Okay. And I said, I'm not asking you for any money, but could you co-sign a loan? Because I have to be over a certain age to get the Right, right. And the income I don't have. Okay. So she agreed to do it. She said to send her the papers. She sent it to her in the mail. Okay. I called the salesman. And yeah. The deal. My parents were livid when they found out. <laughs> not yeah. just in me, but I got my grandmother in trouble. Right. Which I felt bad about. Yeah. But I told, look, I'm not, it's not going to affect me. I just wanted to do this. Yeah. So I did that. I bought that piece of land when I was 12. Wow. And so that motivated me to have these jobs. Yeah. Because I had to have these jobs. To pay. To pay that debt. Yeah. So I knew I had to work. Definitely, yeah. So uh, now, let's circle back. Now I'm like 23, 24, I think it was. Okay. Right before I was buying this house in Jenkintown in that range. And um, salesman calls me up from this place called Palm Coast, which I've never been to. And says, hey, you want to sell your land? You paid ten five. It's worth 25000 Wow. I said, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> I sell it for twenty five. Wow. Well, today it's worth like four to 500000 That's insane. It was right off the intercoastal waterway. Yeah. It's a great piece of land. So right. So I learned a valuable lesson. And that is, <clears throat> don't sell great real estate. Okay. Well hold located, yes. Okay. Best location real estate, hold on to. Okay. Which I remembered from okay. my experience. Because, you know, you learn by your mistakes. Yeah. So you're 12 when you bought it. 23, 24 23 when you sold it. Okay. And then I, and I leveraged that into the house in Jenkins. So how much did you make off of it at that point? I guess I made, like, uh, after I paid the commission, maybe $12,000. Okay. And you used that to buy the house. Okay. And so, um, and then I rented the house. Bought a one-bedroom condo in Academy House. Okay. And then... For listeners who don't know, where is Academy House? 1420 Local Street. Okay, Philadelphia. Got it. By the way, 1978, I 
tripled the time lock business from two hundred and twenty three thousand to like six sixty. Okay. And they gave me like a ten dollar a week raise. The owners were eighty four and eighty one. Okay. Was, I'm being nice when I say they were very careful with their money. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I had realized I needed extra money. I couldn't survive. It was fifteen thousand five hundred, and I tripled their business. Like, right. This is ridiculous. Yeah. And by the way, I was supposed to be able to buy the business after one year. I never got it in writing. I learned that lesson. Okay. Get everything in Get writing. Get everything in writing, yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. You're making more money now. And here's the fear of older people. They were 84 and 81. How much is enough for me to retire? Nobody knows that answer. How much will I need in retirement? Right. So they don't want to sell it. So anyway, uh, I go and hear this guy on the radio named Jay Lamont talking mm-hmm. about all about real estate and talking about Temple University. And mm-hmm. Decided at the end of 78 to take my coursework at Temple. Do that in 79. Get my license at the end of 79. Okay. Started working part-time in 1980 in real estate. Okay. So you had the full-time job, and then on the side, it was kind of like part-time. side hustle. And I would go into the real estate office at 6.30, quarter to 7, wow. work, go back to my full-time job at 8.30, okay. take my 12 to 1 lunch break, mm-hmm. and return all the phone calls that came in. Back Got then, it. had answering machines. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we didn't really have cell phones yet then. Okay. And then uh, we just started to get cell phones at that, because I remember buying my first cell phone. It was $3,200. Wow. Can you imagine that? $3,200. No. Yeah. And that yeah. was a lot of money. So... Um, and then we go back after my full-time job. Basically, real estate was 6.30 to 8.30. Okay. Phelps was 8.30 to 12. Okay. And they were all close by within two, three blocks. Right. Lunch hour, returning phone calls, go mm-hmm. back and work in the Phelps office from 1 to 6.30. Okay. So I gave them full time, and I was doing right. my job. And then I'd work in real estate from 6.30 to 10. Okay. Uh, maybe until 8.30 Friday night. And for the listeners that don't know, it's all residential real estate residential. that you were doing. Okay. So were you selling and leasing apartments? I would start out doing renting. What's that? I started out doing rentals. Doing rentals. Okay. Yeah. So how did that work? Do you make a commission just off like a year yeah. lease? Okay. Make a commission. Make one month's rent. Usually then you get paid a percentage of what the office gets. Got it. Okay. So um, you might get 25% of that or whatever the figure is. Okay. So you have to do a lot of rentals. Right. A lot of rentals. But then what happens is after you do rentals a little while, you're going to find out working with buyers because some of the renters you can convert to owners. Got buyers. it. So you convert the renters to buyers by showing them the economics of why it makes sense okay. to buy and the after-tax cost of home ownership versus renting. Got it. Okay. So, so leasing was like a stepping stone, yes, stepping stone that's to a that. starting point. Got it. Okay. So I was doing the leasing, and then I started doing sales, and I would work Saturday and Sunday showing properties, usually mm-hmm. ten hours, and then uh, at the end of '82, uh, nineteen eighty-two, mm-hmm. I won the award of Philadelphia's a top real estate salesperson. But this was my schedule. Yeah. But remember, interest rates hit twenty, twenty-one percent. Okay. And the top sales at that time was six point three million. Wow. So a few things I learned besides going to Temple and having Jay Lamont as a mentor and others, I also learned, I read a book called How to Sell a Million Dollars Worth of Real Estate, mm-hmm. written in 1969. Okay. When they sold homes, they were 25000 each. Somebody mm-hmm. sold 40 homes. Yeah. And a few things I learned from that book. Number one, become a one-street specialist. Okay. Number two, um, you make a living selling it. Mm-hmm. You create wealth owning it. Okay. Very powerful. Right. You make a living selling real estate. You create wealth owning real estate. Okay. So I said, wow. So this is a, my sales and brokerage is just a vehicle for me to accumulate enough money mm-hmm. or down payments to buy real estate. Right. Okay. So I developed that cookie cutter formula. And that's wow. what I was going to do. So I always lived on my Phelps salary. Okay. And I always invested the real estate income. Okay. Now my first year, I remember when I was still making 15500 How old were you at this point? When you're 1980, doing I was 25. Okay, got it. So 1980, uh, I'm making 15.5 in Phelps, mm-hmm. 
and I made that year thirty five to thirty eight thousand part time in real estate. Wow, which is good money, and I and I saved it and invested. Yeah. I actually bought two or three two condos that year. Okay, two or three, and then eighty mm-hmm. um, one, I made like eighty something thousand dollars in real estate, mm-hmm. which today is equivalent. It's a lot equivalent to today, right? Thirty years yeah, later, almost eighty. Maybe today, maybe you would say it's one hundred fifty to two hundred. Okay, got it. And um, in '82, I made one hundred thirty-five thousand. Now I'm still making fifteen five as wow. the general manager of Phelps Time. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm making one hundred thirty-five. When estate. did you decide to throw yeah. in the towel with them? So at the end of '82, <laughs> after I won the award, I said, "You know what? Maybe I could do this real estate thing full time." Full time, yeah. But there is something to be said about getting a weekly, definite paycheck salary. I, yeah, right. So I was getting a gross of three hundred dollars a week. You okay. know, the taxes of probably two hundred or two ten. Mm-hmm. But every week I would get that. I knew I was getting that two hundred dollars. Sure. Yeah. Real estate, you don't know what you're going to make. Yeah. Every year you start over. Right. Yeah. So I left in the end of '82. Went into real estate full time. Opened my own office. Okay. 1987, specializing in condominiums. Okay. So one street specialist. In 19- so you found a niche, right? So for listeners that don't know. One street specialist. Okay. I found a niche. I was a specialist, just okay. like any doctor or lawyer finds a specialty. Mm-hmm. I was not a generalist. Okay. So, so were you I, focusing on high-end I was focusing on generally condominiums in Center City. Okay. So if you said to me, you know, the Dorchester, I have a junior one bedroom. It's an 09 unit. Okay. It's roughly going to be 600 to 610 square feet. Okay. The condo fee is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 a month. Got it. And the taxes right now are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 4000 a year. Okay. Yeah, I knew. I know the product like that. Okay. Inside and out. So there was two keys I always felt. One. Have the most knowledge possible, mm-hmm. and to be available. Okay. Those are keys. If you have the knowledge and you're available, then you should do well. Okay. So if you have the knowledge and you're not available to customers or clients, mm-hmm. they're not waiting. Got it. So be extremely responsive. Right. Okay. And if, and if you have availability but mm-hmm. you're not knowledgeable, they're not going to work with you. Right. So okay. You need knowledge and availability. Okay. So 1982, I opened my own office. 1987. I sold a lot of real estate, and the National Association of Realtors at that time recognized me as the top residential realtor in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that continued for a while, and then they stopped it. But um, 1990, I became president of the Board of Realtors. I'm going to walk you through the timeline. Okay, sure. And how old were you, too? Because so listeners can get a... I was 30, just turned 34. Okay. I was the youngest president at that time. Okay. There have been since younger presidents. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 1999, I did my first development on Washington Square. Okay. Next to Tallulah's Garden, the restaurant. Sure. The building yeah. Called mm-hmm. Saunders Building. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot. Did not make any money. Okay. But learned that if you're going to develop seven units and put the infrastructure in for seven units, like two elevators and all the systems, okay. you could have had 30 units. And okay. you could have spread that overhead over 30 units instead of seven units. Got it. It was okay. very tough to make money spreading it over seven units. Seven units. Okay. So it was a valuable lesson. Okay. Then after that, I bought a building that nobody wanted called the Barclay around Rittenhouse Square. Nobody yeah. wanted the building. In fact, I was told one of my developer friends after I had already paid $10.7 million, Okay. they told me they were offered the building for free just to take it over. I right. I such a jerk because I had paid ten point seven. Yeah. And by the way, for me to get that money, <coughs> I didn't have any partners. It was not easy. Mm-hmm. But remember, go back in time. I started buying real estate. I started buying two, three, 1980. Every year... I would buy three, four, or five units. Okay. And every year I'd put them on 15-year mortgages. Okay. And I knew, look, I, I choked on the negative cash flow. Okay? Right. Because they didn't carry themselves. Mm-hmm. But I knew I was forcing myself to save money. And if I could live through that time period in 15 years from now, I'd be thankful I went up a mortgage on these properties. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been doing all along. All along, yeah. And so after 1995, I had my first few pay off. 
Okay. Which gives me extra cash flow that I didn't spend. I reinvested. Okay. And so I kept doing that. Okay. And um, kept also refinancing because rates kept going down. Sure. Yeah. So we had some mortgages at 13, 14, 15%. It was mm-hmm. time to refinance them when they became nine. Right. And they became seven. So right, you right. save money that way. So in 1999, I did the Saunders bill and then I did the Barclay. For me to get the loan of the Barclay, I didn't have enough assets or cash. I had to borrow 100% and I had to sign over basically, pledge okay. all my real estate assets, including my personal residence. Wow. And including a personal guarantee, which yeah. my lawyer at the time said to me, you are out of your mind. Right. Don't do that. Yeah. You could lose everything. Okay. But I figured, you know, a risk is when you don't know, have the knowledge of it. Mm-hmm. I figured, what's my risk here? I'm buying 152,000 square feet of the Barclay mm-hmm. for $10.7 million. Okay. It's like $75 a foot or so, $80 right. a foot, whatever it is. How many units were in there? Just, just... Well, there were hotel rooms. Ho- oh, there were hotel rooms. Okay. Got there it. 30, 30 existing condos and 240 hotel rooms. Okay. Wow. So uh, I figured, what, what's the downside here for? For me, right. everyone else thought it was a terrible deal. Yeah. Uh, we had estimated through professionals that it was going to cost $4 million to renovate the building. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be fifteen. Okay. A little bit off. Yeah. <laughs> and we had to renovate it as a condominium, so I was responsible for 52% of those costs. Okay. And the existing owners had to pay the other 48%. Got it. Okay. But um, basically, I started selling units there, and you're very motivated to sell when mm-hmm. you have a debt like that. Right, right, right. And I will say that Jefferson Bank at the time was my lender. Mm-hmm. Thank God, because most banks won't have lent to me. Right. Jefferson did. Right, right. So that was great that they did that. Yeah. And so um, I did the Barclay, and then I started kept doing the brokerage. Okay. And kept still owning real estate and buying sure. individual condos and kept putting everything on 15-year mortgages. Never, okay. Never deviated from that. Okay. I don't think I had a 30-year mortgage after 1981 or 82. Wow. So I always wanted a cheaper interest rate yeah, and the shorter term to force myself to pay it off. Okay. Force savings. Yeah. And so... Uh, and today the Barclays, probably the nicest building in... One of the, one of the nicer ones. Okay. So the spaces that I sold... By the way, I sold the spaces raw, unfinished. Okay. I sold them for... You know, I paid $80 a foot or so or 75 and I've sold them for anywhere from 150 to 250 Wow. So, and then today they're worth 800 to to 1000 a foot. Right. So pe- but people had to renovate them. Right. But many people did very well there. Yeah. And the buildings turned out very nice. It's beautiful. And it's yeah. because of the people who bought. Mm-hmm. The people who bought and fixed up their homes did a tremendous job. Right. And location-wise, I feel like, was it a good risk as well? That's right what, on that's the square? I took the risk. Yeah. I figured if this is not going to be good, kiss the city for off and go by. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So did that. Then I did another building called the Lanesboro at uh, 16 and Locust. Okay. 2004. And did a building with a partner. It's called the Bank Building. Okay. And then had a building that was not successful called 22 Front. Okay. And I was a limited partner, but that was not a success. That was, I, I call it a failure. Mm-hmm. You do have failures in this business. Yeah. And then uh, did a building called the Warwick. Okay. And then did a joint venture with Luke and Adler on the park, which I then later bought them out for and, and continued the uh, conversion of the park. Okay. Which is where I live. <laughs> I'm in a very tiny unit, but right. <laughs> super nice building. So yeah. the, and the park building was a tough building to do because we went mm-hmm. through a bad economic time. Right, in 2008. Now, let me talk a little about the uh, restaurant side and okay. the government side. Right. So now I have the Barclay. I have mm-hmm. the ground floor, and I need to put a restaurant in place. It's now 2000. And it's 1999, but I figured I'm not going to deal with the restaurant until I start selling these units. Mm-hmm. And I was showing it to a bunch of different companies from Sam and Harry's out of Washington to the Cheesecake Factory. Okay. But that would not have been a great fit. Right. 
they wanted it, but I, I didn't want to do it. Um, Fleming's, the steakhouse, wanted it. Mm-hmm. Served you know, wine by the glass. Right. I didn't want a chain. Okay. Uh, Neil Stein at one point wanted it okay. uh, for a uh, supper club. And I tried to get George Perrier to move Lebec Finn there, but that mm-hmm. didn't work either. Okay. And finally, I went to Stephen Starr, who said to me, I'm not interested. He goes, I'm, you know, I'm in Old City. I'm, I'm all over in Now Square. Okay. So at that time, he was mostly in Old City. Right. I remember that. Budokan. Budokan. Okay. Valdez. He had just opened the Alma Cuba. Mm-hmm. And he was working on Continental and okay. 18th and Market. So I said, well, come look at it. He comes and looks at it and says, eh, I'm not really interested. I said, what would make you interested? He said, if you put up the money, I'm interested. I said, I'm not putting up the money. Long story short, we worked out a deal where I put up most of the money. Okay. Star restaurants put up a short amount of money, a small amount of the money. And that's how Barclay Prime happened. Yeah, very but cool. Barclay Prime was not originally Barclay Prime. Okay. Barclay Prime was originally going to be a small plate French restaurant. Okay. That was called La Bibliothèque. That's why if you go into Barclay Prime and you look in the restaurant, you'll see, first of all, not a typical steak restaurant. Mm-hmm. The furniture is like a lime green and white. Mm-hmm. And there's all these books. Right. Okay, that's called La Bibliothèque. Okay. And what happened was at the last minute it got switched to a steak and seafood restaurant. Okay. Called Barclay Prime. Very cool. Yeah, and, and I think it was a good move. Yeah. So uh, that became Barclay Prime. Then I got more involved with Star Steve Restaurants. Star, okay. Uh, when did Park that. Restaurant go in? Park Restaurant, I think, opened, I want to say, sometime in 08. Okay. Uh, when I was involved with that building, I wanted Park there because I, I yeah. figured that would help me sell the units. There. Right. And Park, I think, is one of the most successful restaurants. It's unbelievable. City. Yeah. They serve over, I think, 1,800 meals a day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Very I got cool. more involved with Star Restaurants after mm-hmm. that. And then... Uh, I got involved with other restaurateurs, entrepreneurs who are okay. in the city because I love Philadelphia and I mm-hmm. love the fact that I love to see entrepreneurs, you know, grow their businesses. Right. I'm not a big fan of chains. Yeah. And I'm more of a fan of individual. Got it. Philadelphia. Very cool. Yeah. And then in, uh, I got called, I got a phone call in 2011 or 12, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think it was 12. It was 11. Okay. Asking me what, if I would consider coming back again to be president of the Board of Realtors. Okay. I had been president in 1990. And your father was president before me. Got in, it. In the okay. 80s. Right. I want to say he was president in maybe '85. Okay. Sure. And um, I said, I really don't want to do that, but they convinced me I should, and I felt mm-hmm. the organization had been very good to me. Right. So I became president-elect in '12 and president in 2013 again, okay. and 14 and 15, which led me into my political career because I saw that maybe there was an opportunity for me to give back and help the city of Philadelphia with. Issues that I thought I could be of help with. Right. Especially government efficiency and making sure. things better for all of us. So I ran for a city council uh, in 15. Okay. was fortunate to win the primary and fortunate to win the general election. Sure, yeah. Served for the last three and a half years and just had a primary in May mm-hmm. where I was fortunate to win that primary. I also have a general election coming up in November. Okay. And I will say that, uh, you know, most of my focus in, in, in the city council position is focused on three goals I have. Mm-hmm. One. Most importantly, take 100,000 people out of poverty. Okay. Two, bring 100,000 new jobs to the city. And mm-hmm. three, bring 100,000 new residents to the city. Okay. And they're all kind of connected. Sure, yeah. We have a city of a million and 560,000 people. Unfortunately, we have 400,000 people in poverty. Mm-hmm. We have 226,000 of the 400,000 okay. are in what's called deep poverty. Okay. Meaning they make less than $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. Right. Of the 400,000 people in poverty, we need about 148,000 jobs. Okay. 
because those people are married, have kids, whatever. Right. So it's not insurmountable. Yeah. Like even if we made a dent and got twenty five thousand jobs, right, that would probably leverage us to sixty thousand people coming out of poverty. So that's been my focus okay. uh, in council. Sure. And uh, we've passed several bills. I think what we need to do as a city is become more business friendly. Yeah. There's two statistics that really are eye-openers for me. One is from 2010 to 2017, 81% of the people who left Philadelphia okay. did not have children. Wow. So they're not leaving for schools. Yeah. So 19% had children. So that means okay. basically one out of five people who left the city had kids. That's okay. why they left. Okay. Four out of five did not have kids. Yeah. Why did they leave? Number one reason, taxes. Okay. Number two reason, job opportunities. Job. Wow. They kind of go together. Yeah. So the, the other statistic that is, I think, an eye-opener is that every day in Philadelphia, 211,000 people, or 40% of our population, commutes to a job in the suburbs. 40% of our workforce leaves the city. Four to ten people leave mm -hmm. the city every day right. to a job in the suburbs. New York is 15%. Wow. So what does that mean? That means probably our laws mm -hmm. in the city and our taxation laws mm -hmm. have caused companies to say, you know what? It's beneficial for me to be in the suburbs, mm -hmm. not in the city. Yeah. And I'm not going to pay, for example, the BERT taxes, business income receipt taxes, which are net income and gross receipts. And I'm not going to subject my employees to the city wage tax. Right. Those are the taxes that we need to address in a big way. Mm -hmm. And it's long-term thinking, which right. isn't always the case in government. Because okay. most people are in government for how do I get reelected? Sure, yeah. But this is something like if you had a business and you were investing in your business, you wouldn't invest for the next four years. You invest in the next 20 years. Right. That's right, a long-term right. outlook. Yeah. So if we look at the city as a long-term play, which is hard to do because yeah. elections are so important to everybody, mm -hmm. we would dramatically lower the wage taxes. We would dramatically eliminate the net income and gross receipts taxes. Right. And encourage businesses to come into the city. Because at the end of the day, the best way out of poverty is for a good-paying job. Right. People need jobs. They need good paying jobs. Right. And if we can lower those birth taxes, we're going to see more of these companies come into the, come city. the city. Look at Boston. Fidelity headquarters is in downtown Boston. Mm -hmm. Vanguard's headquarters is in Valley Forge. Valley Forge, yeah. They have one little small office here, in which Bill, is a joke. Yeah. Right. Seven buses a day pick up millennials at the train station at Valley Forge and mm -hmm. bring them. They come out of the city, they bring them to their headquarters. Right. Seven buses a day. Yeah. In the morning and at night. So, we know one thing, millennials and baby boomers do want to live urban, mm -hmm. not just in Philadelphia, but across the country. Right. We just have to figure out how we attract the companies sure. to also be urban. Definitely. And it's our taxation laws that we have to address. Got it. So a couple questions I had backing up a little bit. Um, one question I really wanted to ask you is the art of negotiating, because obviously you need to use it in not only real estate, but your political arena and then everywhere in life. So do you have any good... Um, tactics you can offer to listeners on how to be a good negotiator? Well, I think you always have to remember one thing about negotiation. He or she who wants it most loses. Okay. You know what I mean, you know what I mean by that? Yeah. The person who wants it more than, if you want to buy it more than I want to sell it, okay. you're going to pay more. Right. If I want to sell it more than you want to buy it, you're going to pay less. Okay. So he or she who wants it more loses. Okay. That's number one. Okay. That's just so you understand where sure, that's at. Yeah. Like if I want to buy something, I'm going to pay the price. Mm -hmm. And if you want to buy something from me and I don't really want to sell it, you're going to pay the price. Mm -hmm. that's, right. That's basic rule in negotiating. Okay. And the other part of negotiating, of course, everybody knows this already. So you have to um, negotiate in a way that the other person wins. 
okay. you get what you want. Right. You have to give them a win. You okay. will not have a successful negotiation if the person walks away from the table and feels they lost. Okay. They need to have You can't cram anything down anybody's throat. Right. Everyone has to feel that they won. Okay. And if you're a broker, you have to make both sides feel good. Right. And if you're just negotiating with somebody, you have to maybe bend on your side so they feel good. Okay. Most situations I've seen, especially mm -hmm. in real estate and other things, people have been too tough on negotiations and mm -hmm. they tell you the, the war stories. Okay. And I can tell you some of those myself because I've, I've learned that I can't be that tough in some negotiations. Right, right, right. I remember I had a, uh, a penthouse at one of my buildings where the guy offered me $5 million. We were asking 6.5 for both units. And um, he said, oh, five's my number. I, I counted at 6. I went to 5.5. He said, no, 5. I said, no, forget it. He went and bought something else. Two and a half years later, I sold them both for three. Wow. Okay. So I learned that. You learned, yeah. For <laughs> that sure. That wasn't a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So I'd say that that's just the basics. Okay. And I also think you need to know on a negotiation what is important to the person you're speaking with. Mm -hmm. What what is important to them? Right. And how do you how do you accomplish their goals? Okay. And how do you how do you achieve them? Because you're not going to be successful unless you accomplish them. Right. Exactly. Um, and another follow up question I have. So when you were doing the residential real estate, the development, and then you entered into the political arena in, say, like 2013 when you started campaigning. Did anyone think you were crazy? Did you encounter any naysayers? Yes. Okay. And how did you not fall victim to them? Uh, well, people, I remember an article was written that I'd lose my mind because mm -hmm. uh, why would I want to do this? Right. And I thought about it and said, I may have a little, okay. But at the end of the day, think about this. Mm -hmm. Isn't it most important for all of us to have a good healthy, thriving city. I mean, how do you do anything in the city if you don't have a good city? Okay. If you don't have a city where we're reducing poverty, mm -hmm. where we're, we're enriching people's lives, where we're building their wealth. Yeah. How do we have not have a good city? I mean, how do you not have successful businesses here if you don't accomplish those goals? Right. I mean, do you think we're successful with a 26% poverty rate? I'd say not really. Right. We need to address that. Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, I looked at it and said, you know what? In my world, the most important for me mm -hmm. is a healthy, thriving city okay. that has, can reduce its poverty rate. Right. Because that's more important than anything else. Yeah, definitely. I want to go back to negotiating, by the way. I didn't okay. One of the things. One of the things. Sure, yeah. Uh, there's something called the DISC. DISC? DISC. Okay. DISC. DISC, okay. For those who aren't familiar with it, you can Google it. It's a personality. Okay. And for those in real estate or any negotiation, you yeah. need to know the personality of the person you're negotiating with. Okay. So as an example, a D is someone who is, let's say, dominant, who says basically in real estate, hey, Alan, just give me the bottom line. What's this going to cost me? Okay. And a C is, hey, Alan, is like an accountant. Okay. Or a numbers person. Can you please give me the last 10 years of all the sales and the last 20 years of all the rentals? And let me analyze this for the next two weeks. And okay. And I'll come back to you. Right. So you need to know your personality types. Mm -hmm. And the uh, S is a socializer. Okay. Like they want to know who else lives in the building? What amenities are here? Who am I okay. going to meet here? Right. So you need to know the personality of the person you're either negotiating with or selling to. Okay. Very important. Right. I like that. Otherwise, you're not on the same plane with them. Exactly. Yeah. And you, you as the negotiator or salesperson, can change your methods to their personality. Right. So if you give, if you have a, an accountant and you say to them, "Hey, Alan, the bottom line is this: you want it or not? That's right. not going to work with them." Interesting. Okay. Now, if you say, listen, hey, Alan, here's the last 10 sales that okay. have occurred in the last two years. Mm -hmm. 
here's the last 10 rentals. Mm -hmm. Here's how we figured out the analysis. Right. That may work for okay. the C person. It won't work for the D person. Right. Got so it. It's depending on the person. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So a couple of the questions that I ask um, people on the show, sort of like life skill questions. So you've had a ton of success in real estate and the political arena. So I think a lot of people put my guests on pedestals because of all the success you've had. But as you know, we all experience adversity and setbacks. So um, can you tell us a story about a time that you may have failed in your career and how you persevered and um, well, all, continued on? Anyone who has some success mm -hmm. has had more failures than they're able to tell you about. Mm -hmm. Every day there's a failure. Every hour there's a failure. Mm -hmm. And I always say the key to a successful person is the one who, when they're in a failure, okay. can lift themselves out of the failure quickly by remembering what it was like when they were in a success. Okay. Because if you dwell in failure, mm -hmm. you're done. Right. You can't let it get you down. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had this year alone two or three restaurants that I invested in closed. Wow. Okay. Using a lot of money. Yeah. Last week I just got a notification that Barney's next mm -hmm. door is closing their store. Oh, wow. They pay us seventy thousand a month in rent. Yeah, that's oh. a lot of money a year. Eight hundred thousand yeah. dollars. That, that, right. I would say that's a failure. Yeah. So, um, but you can't let it. You, know, you have to look at the positive side. My mm -hmm. father always told me, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Okay. And the positive side is hopefully we'll find a tenant who's going to be a better fit for that space. Right. Exactly. Definitely. So, um, you can't dwell on the failure. Mm -hmm. You got to think of the successes. Definitely. Yeah. But everyone has them. For sure. Everyone. And if you don't have them, that means they're not really out there. Right, exactly. Um, and then the art of listening. I think listening is a hard skill, sort of. You always have to practice it, and you're always developing it. Um, so Coach Wright, when I interviewed him, he said you've, he tells all his players, you have two ears and one mouth, so always listen twice as much as you speak. Um, so how do you practice the art of listening with your clients and people you deal with? You must with? have stole that from me. I, <laughs> I tell real estate people, God gave us two ears and one mouth. <laughs> Use them in that proportion. Right, okay. <laughs> but um, it's... It's key to listen. Mm -hmm. I always tell real estate salespeople, most salespeople talk too much. Mm -hmm. Okay. You're better off listening. Listening, okay. Or asking questions. Asking questions, okay. And by the way, sometimes when you, you know, if this is a real estate related event, mm -hmm. sometimes when you're with a customer or a client and you've been out showing them properties two, three, four, five times and you can't seem to figure out what the issue is, mm -hmm. you got to bring them back in for another appointment and oh. like requalify them. Okay. And have an open conversation. Got it. Because you must have missed something. Right, exactly. And uh, so I would say that listening is key. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also think that knowledge is key. Right. I always look at myself and say, if I'm the best heart doctor in the city, mm -hmm. God forbid someone comes to me with a heart problem, I want to be able to diagnose it as quickly as possible to mm -hmm. make them better. Right. And so in a way, you got to look at real estate and other things like that. Mm -hmm. You'll have the most respect when someone comes to you and says, this is what I'm looking for. And you can figure it out and you can analyze it just like the best lawyer or doctor does. Right, exactly. So that's why I like being a, a specialist mm -hmm. because you know your field and you know what. what the, and you got to tell people the truth. You know what? I don't have what you're looking for and mm -hmm. it doesn't exist. Got it. And here's why. You want 3,000 square feet, okay, mm -hmm. for a million dollars. And the market around the square is starts at six hundred dollars a foot. Okay. So that starts at one point eight. So it just doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. So let me yeah. just tell you right, that, right, that, right. That's not a possibility. Mm -hmm. Alternative real estate, maybe, but that's not a possibility. Okay. So I think you got to tell people right up front the truth. Sure. I like that. I will say this: the most important thing in our business is to tell people the truth and to talk in terms and also speak in terms of their interests, not yours. Okay. Never ever put your interests out there. Okay. It's not about your interests. It's right. about theirs. So if they come and call you and say, I want to buy, and you think it's better for them to rent, you better tell them that. 
you'll build a friend. Okay. You'll tell them the right advice. Right. I just rented three apartments to three buyers. I actually converted them, which they tell you in real estate, never do that. I converted a buyer to a renter. Okay. Because it was better for them. Right. And in the long run, I've built friends with them. Exactly. Yeah. I like that too. Um, So one common theme I also talk about is um, the meaning of the word grit. So Angela Duckworth is from Philadelphia, teaches at Penn. She wrote the New York Times bestseller, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Have you read that book? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's all about, you know, being gritty and whatnot. So I'd love to hear what the word grit means to you. Because I hear you don't really sleep either. <laughs> You're working around the clock. So we'd love to, you know, know how you practice grit. I would say that for me, I'm not sure it's grit. Mm-hmm. But I would say that um, I have certain goals that I'm motivated by. Okay. And uh, I think if you're in real estate, mm-hmm. you enjoy helping people. Sure, yeah. And I think those same skills transfer over to the hospitality business, whether mm-hmm. it's the restaurant or hotel business. Got it. And I think those exact skills transfer over to government. Mm-hmm. Because in government, what are you doing? You're helping people. Right. And uh, on the grit side, I think it's like, I think keeping your head down and just keep going, that's probably part of the grit. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there's a lot of times people are, a lot of things happen. Mm-hmm. Some many things I can't tell tell you on this podcast, right? But a lot of things happen that are so negative and terrible that you mm-hmm. can't let them uh, get you down. Okay. And it's the grit that keeps you going. Keep going, yeah. And so, uh, remember what I said about this, the definition of a successful person? Mm-hmm. Everyone has failures. Okay. It's a successful person when they're in a failure remembers the success that gets them out quickly. Okay. The quicker you come out of a failure, the more successful you can be. Sure. So, I, I would say that. Grit to me is just keeping your head down and achieving your goals. Yeah. And um, working towards those goals. Got it. I like that. Um, and one last question I always ask people. It's sort of a selfish question because I'm 31. But what advice would you give to your 30 slash, you know, 31-year-old self? I would say this. A couple things. Okay. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Think about that. It's building relationships. No one cares how much you know. They don't care how smart you are. Okay. They only care, really, what they they care about what like you care about them. Mm-hmm. Right. When you care about people. You'll build relationships, mm-hmm. as you say. But no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care about them. Okay. And I'd say the other advice I would say is, which we kind of touched on, is you make a living selling it. You create wealth owning it. Mm-hmm. I think. The other piece I would say that I learned is always live below your means. Mm-hmm. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses. Okay. I'm a member of the top 300 realtors in the country. Mm-hmm. Half of them have no money. Wow. They live above their means. Yeah. And so that's not really necessary. Mm-hmm. And you have to decide what's important to you. Yeah. And I always think that creating passive income. Mm-hmm. Is the best thing you can do. Right. Where you create income where you don't have to work. Okay. And you work towards that goal. Okay. So. Uh, That's a great piece yeah. of advice. Yeah. Really good. Um, do, you, do you own investment real estate yourself? Not yet. But now after listening to this, I'm going to. <laughs> like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's great advice. Um, if you buy something this year, when you're 46, it'll be paid off. Yeah. 15-year mortgage. Think about that. Okay. You think, you know, you, most people who are 30 mm-hmm. are not thinking about retirement. Right. But you should be. Right. Because the power of the amortization, the real estate is powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you take a 15-year mortgage today, the rates are so low today. Right. Oh my God, they're insanely low. Yeah. At 46, it'll be paid off. You 
keep buying every year. Mm-hmm. By the time you're 60, you'll have a little nest egg. Right, exactly. That's great advice. Get going. Yeah, get going. Um, and then any last, you know, where can people follow you um, to learn more about like, the city councilmen and kind of how they can get involved and everything? So, I mean, look, Alan Real Estate's on Facebook, okay. Instagram, and Twitter. So it's my city council page. Okay. So you can Perfect. follow us on any of those. And my phone number in city council, if people still want to call us, is 686-3414. Okay. I will say this, any issues you're having with the city. Okay. Uh, if you can't get a resolve, you should call my office. Okay. And we'll help you. Perfect. We want people to have a good experience. With yeah. Awesome. Well, high five, Alan. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> that was fun. Hi, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to High Five Success Stories. To learn more about the podcast, feel free to follow me on Instagram. My handle is at High Five Success. Or on Facebook, you can like High Five Success Stories with Steph Hayden. Or I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at High Five Hayden. And lastly, you can subscribe to the newsletter on my website, www.stephhayden.com. And if you get a second, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much.